You know, before we get started, just I think about dads a lot. I think about my dad. I think about myself as a dad and different dads. I've had the pleasure of being around. And I don't know where I learned it, but somewhere along the way, I learned that humor was just fantastic. And um, I like to laugh. And I always thought that people in our world just take themselves way too seriously. And I just always had it in my mind that people just need to learn to laugh at themselves. So if we just make fun of them enough, <laughs> eventually they just start laughing at themselves. Now, not always the best philosophy, mind you, but I, but I learned because I learned that in serious moments in life, a little bit of levity is helpful. And sometimes I make a joke and Rachel is elbowing me like, stop. It's, it's now crossed the bounds. It's not funny. And I'm like, but it, somebody, if I just keep going, somebody will laugh. But I'm glad I kind of learned to laugh at myself. I was very young in ministry. I had, not, I had been newly called to Keystone Heights, and we had one of, a, one of the 12-step groups. It was Overeaters Anonymous, had reached out to our church and asked, could they meet in our church? And I said, well, of course. We would love to host you. And they, so they did, and they asked me, well, would you stay for the first meeting and pray with us. And I said, would love to. Now, you, if you've ever noticed me pray, you know I don't bring written prayers. I have no problem with that. I just like to pray. I'll think about it and pray spontaneously. We were standing there, and they say, Pastor, okay, would you like to open up with a word of prayer? And I said, sure. And I said, all right, let's join hands. And I said, dear Lord, and my mind went blank. And chapel family, the next thing that came out of my mouth is one of those things that was cringe at the time we laugh at now. Dear Lord, help these people not eat so much. (laughs) That's the first thing that came to my mind. And then I tried to recover from there. And I tried so hard to move away from food and to talk about the spiritual nourishment that we need in Jesus And then when I said amen, they would not even make eye contact with me. They were like, well, thank you, Pastor. And I was tempted to be, I was embarrassed. But on the ride home at one point, I was riding home and I just said out loud, dear Lord, help them don't eat so much. And I laughed. I had to laugh at myself. So If you ever put your foot in your mouth, just remember the time that Brad at an Overeaters Anonymous helped people who were trying to get a control on how much they eat actually prayed, God help them don't eat so much. Not my finest moment as a pastor. Please turn over to Ruth chapter 2. There we resume our study this morning. Um, So even people who are used to speaking in front of people don't always have the right word, but uh, thank God the Word of God has the right word for us every single day. Time. We continue to make our way through Ruth. We are in chapter 2. We have built the conflict. We've seen it, as I told you last week, uh, having began chapter 2 last week, that we are into the resolution aspect of Ruth. How will Ruth resolve? Well, we know it doesn't resolve ultimately until chapters 3 and 4, but Ruth 2 really is begins the ascent to uh, the resolution and climax of the story of where we're going to get to, with how, do, how does everything resolve out? Well, we've already met the characters, uh, primary characters who do resolve it, but we're continuing to crescendo up to that point. And so we've looked at uh, Ruth already having gone into the fields to begin the gleaning, and we talked about gleaning a little bit 
last week and how Leviticus and Deuteronomy make provision for gleaning. And so Ruth is simply doing what the law provides, that Boaz being faithful to the law allowed her to go and glean. But now we're beginning to see a development in what it means for how Ruth, rather, I should say, how Ruth really does uh, begin to bear fruit as a book and, and to give us these nuggets of gold and wisdom that we can sink our teeth into. And in fact, we, we get m- more of a look at Boaz here as his character has already been on display a little bit, but it becomes on display even more. And so without further delay, let's really turn our attention to the Scriptures. This morning, we're going to be looking at Ruth chapter 2, verses 8 to 16. So please follow along with me in your Bibles. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible and errant word. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when, they are, and when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land, and you came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the Lord God of Israel, or the God of Israel, rather, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she arose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, and also pull some out from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So as the reading of God's Word, may He add its blessing. Please pray with me. Father, thank You for Your Word, its rich beauty, its power, its truth, God, its majesty. Be with us this morning as we look through it, as we focus in now on this narrative in Ruth, melt our hearts with the power of the living God and help us to see You in every verse that we might be transformed into the image of Christ. We pray in His name. Amen. If you look in the Psalter, that is the book of the Psalms, it is filled with different Psalms that have different contexts, different emphases, different themes. Two of the Psalms in the Psalter that actually go together, that speak powerfully to us, are Psalm 111 and 112. And if if you look at these two Psalms, Psalm 111 is about the great works of the Lord. Praise the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. And he goes on to build this case about who God is, who the Lord, who is this Lord, who is this Lord worthy to be feared. 
He's caused wondrous works to be remembered. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant. He's shown his people the power of his works and giving them the inheritance. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They're established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He's commanded, he's committed his covenant and so forth and so on. It's all rich truth about who God is and what he's done. Now, if you follow closely and you look at Psalm 112, Psalm 112 is actually meant to be taken with Psalm 111. And what is it doing? Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. Generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house. Righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He's gracious and merciful and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously. What you're looking at is something that should be striking to us. Psalm 112 takes the language of Psalm 111, Psalm 111 being a description of God. Psalm 112 takes very similar identical language and uses it to describe the man or woman who fears the Lord. So Psalm 112 is saying it's very blessed to fear the Lord. And there's a reward with living as the Lord is our true delight. And it's, it's humbling as you begin to see the similarities that the author of both of these psalms uses to describe the man of God or the woman of God and how God is described. If God is righteous and splendid and, and gracious in love and, and giving to His people, that's exactly how the man of God is described. And so we're getting a picture for how should the covenant people of God, we see that word, in Psalm 111, the idea of covenant, how should those people who are in covenant with God actually appear? Well, we should look a lot like God does. That doesn't mean that we're going to be the glorious king of all creation. That doesn't mean that we're going to be immutable and sovereign. That doesn't mean that we're going to be redemptors or mediators. What it is going to mean as the things that describe God, i.e. love, grace, mercy, justice, righteousness, uprightness, those things that describe God's character should very easily describe His people. That's what the Scriptures assume. Psalm 112 describes the man or woman of God with the same terms which God has described. Now, why do I say it's astounding or striking? Because very rarely do we think of ourselves as being neat reflections of God. Very rarely do people describe us as those who are neat reflections of God. Now, that doesn't mean we don't do it. It just means that so often we're so quick to highlight how far, how far we fall short that we forget what it is exactly we're supposed to be doing. We are supposed to be imitating God. When people see us, they should see accurate reflections of who God is. Guys, or beloved, that's not, that's not pie in the sky. That's not for the real serious Christians. That's for every single one of us in this room who call Christ Lord. Of what we should be doing, seeking to embody what Psalm 112 says, dealing generously, lending, conducting our affairs with justice, being righteous, being uh, station or being uh, fixed in that righteousness, not being afraid of bad news. Not, it's not to say that we make light of bad news, not to say that we even laugh at bad news, but understanding that bad news is not going to shift our 
or the redemptive reality of who we are and whose we are. So this is something in which we are called to live out. What I would say is Psalm 111 is God. Psalm 112 is what it means to be godly. So you have God, the picture of God, and then you have a description of godliness. Now, why bring all that up in the context of Ruth? Because that's exactly what we're seeing, especially in Boaz's character in the present paragraph, and we'll see it again, and we'll see it in Ruth's. We see this this root of godliness. What is the root of godliness when it comes to our faith? Love the root of godliness really is righteousness. Now, the righteousness that you and I possess in Christ this morning is what Martin Luther called an alien righteousness. What does that mean? Well, it just simply means that it doesn't originate in us, but it was given to us by Christ. But righteousness is the lifeblood of godliness. Well, Brad, I'm not perfectly righteous, and neither am I. That's not the point. The point is, is we have been vested with the righteousness of Christ through His sacrifice. And the goal of, of the Christian life is to let that righteousness determine exactly how we live. Brad, what do you mean by righteous? You've said this word a few times. Are you talking about moral perfection or moral purity or any sort of superiority? Yes to moral purity, no to superiority. When we think about righteousness, what does it mean to be righteous? Well, there's a couple of meanings. It means that we are choosing to be moral and ethical. Sure, that's a technical legal definition of it. But for the Christian, it's bigger than that. It doesn't just mean that we do it right because we don't always do it right, that we mess up from time to time. And so righteousness becomes foundational or or becomes this, when we think of righteousness, it means to have a right relationship. Both in the Hebrew and the Greek, sadiq and dikaiosune, that is the Hebrew respectively and the Greek, they have a relational component. So what it means is, is that I'm rightly related to God. So how does my right relationship with God, i.e. Christ, determine how I live? That's what it's meant to do. That's what righteousness is designed to do. So when we look at Boaz and Ruth, what motivates Boaz to do the right thing? Well, you could, you could, I guess you could try to make a case that he selfishly wants Ruth, and so he's just trying to get into her good graces. That works for a season. But if somebody's got protracted faithfulness, they're motivated by something else. And when you look at Boaz, the thing that we're supposed to take away from both Ruth and Boaz is that they are motivated by righteousness, doing what is right by the person, doing what is in keeping with what God would have me do. And so the fruit of righteousness is going to be justice, wisdom, love, grace, humility, mercy. And beloved, I'll just say, when that is not the fruit, that's not something that's not coming from righteousness. Because Pharisees really look righteous, but I dare say we would describe them as merciful or charitable or gracious or kind. They tend to be pretty exacting. But righteousness, you see, comes with a big old dose of humility because the more we look at Christ and we see Him exalted, the more we see how much we need transformation. And beloved, that type of recognition of transformation comes 
from righteousness, of being right, real, rightly related to the one who's calling us deeper. So we look at Boaz, and he embodies these things. And so without the, the one thing I want for us to see this morning, the idea that I find in this paragraph is this, at the beginning of character and covenant fidelity, we're going to call it compassion. Now, I'm going I'm to define that here in just a minute and so, show you how it relates to righteousness. But let's call it compassion. So the beginning of character and covenant fidelity is compassion. It starts in God's compassion, and that compassion bleeds out to us. So what we have here, when I say covenant fidelity, it's just covenant faithfulness, just a way of being faithful to the covenant. How do we see that embodied in Boaz? We're going to look. We'll see that embodied in Ruth. But there's, there's a power there when we take the covenant principles that we have in Scripture that God has established with us, and it motivates us in how we live and how we relate and how we uh, make our stand and the things that we make our stand upon. And so faithfulness is not simply about provision. Faithfulness, it also assumes compassion. You know, what we want to talk about the faithfulness of fathers on Father's Day. Like I said, there are two types of people. Uh, well, more than that, but let's just be binary for, for now. There are two types of people, uh, people who had faithful and perfect fathers and people who did not. And I guarantee you, I, I can guarantee you, I mark it down. If you're sitting here this morning and Father's Day is a struggle for you because of your father, if I asked you, was your father a compassionate man, you would probably say no. Because we look at compassion as an add-on instead of as a primary evidence or fruit of what it means to be righteous in the Lord. What motivates Boaz? Sure, we could say selfishness. But how about compassion? And why is he motivated by compassion? Because he's looking into the God who is Yahweh, and the compassion that he has built into his relationship with his people that culminates in Christ. And he says, yes, this is where we must emulate. This is the bare bones of what it means to be rightly related with God. Not always exacting. Should we have expectations? You bet we should. But what does it mean to have expectations with built-in compassion, understanding that people are not going to meet the expectation every time? We got to have compassion. We see that in Boaz. Boaz begins this paragraph. He says this, then, Bo then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go into glean or do not go to glean in a, another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Now this is where we start. Now I want you to notice here the term that he uses to describe Ruth. He says, my daughter. What that should immediately tell us right there is the, the simple truth is there's an age difference, Right? There's an age difference between Boaz and Ruth. Boaz is, Boaz is older, Ruth is younger. One of the ways we know this is how does, how does Naomi refer to Ruth? My daughter. Highlighting that Ruth was tied to Naomi in marriage, but also that there's an age difference. Boaz is older. But it's not simply about the age difference. It's an affectionate term. Whatever romance happens between Ruth and Boaz, which technically we don't know that that's coming yet, we just know the story as it stands, there is a certain amount of affection already developed there that Boaz has, let's call it a fatherly care. He is genuinely concerned about Ruth. What drives that? Well, I think the compassion of God drives that. We'll see in just a minute. But he says, my daughter, there's caring concern here. And then he, he, gives her, he gives her this command. He gives her the first of a couple in this verse. 
Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one. Do not go to another field. Why? Because there's protection here. I'm going to see to it that you have protection here. There's protection. There's provision here. Stay here where it's safe. Stay here where you're provided for. Stay here where people care about you, that there's concern and there's well-being. And then he says, keep close to my young women. So now we're beginning to see the process of what's ultimately going to unfold in, in Boaz's life and in this book. He is beginning, however slowly, to enfold Ruth into his house. Ruth was not one of his young women, and by young women, understand servant women, people who worked for him. So Ruth was not one of those officially. He's beginning to enfold her in, to draw her in to his home. Stick close to my young women. Why? You'll be known here. You'll be watched here. You won't be just some stranger. You won't be a foreigner from Moab. You'll have value here. We want to value you. That comes out later when he says, I'll command the young men not to literally, he says, reproach in the SV, humiliate you, which we'll talk about that in just a few minutes. So he's already assigning value here. And so we're seeing Boaz, and we get this picture of Boaz as an imitation of the covenant Lord who's doing the things, think Psalm 112, who's doing the things that Yahweh does for His people. He's generous. He's kind. He's loving. He's being upright. I want you to see the way in which He's setting the parameters for the relationship. Everything is above board. We're going to protect you. You're vulnerable and weak. I see my primary… Here, this is Boaz talking. You're vulnerable, weak. I see my primary task as you need protection, you need provision. This is not something to take advantage of. This is someone to help. You know what that is, beloved? You know how simple this is? We want to talk about in worldview terms, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. This is someone who sees another person as created in the image of God. It doesn't matter that she's from Moab. She's in the image of God, and she's worth helping worth protecting, worth providing for. That's how we view people. That's how we view people as created in the image of God. And so, verse 9, let your eyes be on the field that you are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Uh, here, here it is again. You're seeing protection provision. He's commanded anybody, he's commanded all those not to harm her. Now, I want you to understand by the command what is implicit here. This is, again, you remember when God establishes the covenant with Abraham, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. If you turn that around, God is saying to bless you is to bless me, to curse you is to curse me, and so I'm going to give them the due reward. Boaz is now telling Ruth they're not going to harm you because to harm or touch you is now going to be to harm or touch me. You are now an extension of me in the field. This is the most beautiful protection he could have given. Beloved, this, this answers a fundamental question. How do we love the weak? You know, widows in our society don't carry the same baggage that they did in this one, but we still have to grapple with the question, how will we love the weak? How will we love the vulnerable in our midst? How will we love those who can't really protect themselves by extending grace and love and protection to them, by, 
by seeking ways to practically enfold them so that they're not alone and they're not open to being oppressed. We can't do it for every single soul, but may we be challenged for the people we can do it for to do it. Because that's a biblical truth that's here on display. But I love the fact that it, it, you, you'll pass right over this. If you're, when you are, when, not if, when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and draw what the young men have drawn. Do you know what an honor this is? Because in this day, who went and drew the water? Not the young men, but the women did. And they often had to walk great distances. And often those distances would open them up to be attacked and, and, and maybe even harmed in ways that were physical or sexual or no, in any sort of way. And so Boaz, recognizing that Ruth is less than the weak of Israel because she's a Moabite, says, the young men have water, you drink from their water. may not sound big to us, but it's a huge deal for Ruth because she gets to go over to the little shade tabernacle tent type temporary structure that was probably put up during harvest and drink what the young men have had to gather. Talk about protecting the weak. Not only am I not going to send you out on a journey, you're going to sit and sip and drink with the guys who normally you would not share a vessel with. Beloved of God, this is what it means to provide and protect. Boaz is an agent of grace in her life. And how the question then becomes, how do we become agents of grace in the lives of others? We are not going to, and I'm going to use the word save here in a way that I hope you will understand what I mean. We can't save anybody's soul. There's going to be many people in our midst that we can't help or save, but there are opportunities for us to love and bless and help the vulnerable among us if we will be open to it. So how do we pray? We pray, Lord, help me to be a conduit of righteousness to those who are hurting and broken and lost. And you may be sitting here, and, Brad, I have very little. I have little treasure to give. It's not always our treasure that people need. But you know what you do have? Everyone in this room, if you call Christ Lord, you know what you do have? A wealth of compassion because you know what it's like to be broken and hurting. I love when Peter and the other disciples are walking and the person is asking for alms. And Peter says, I don't have money, but what I do have, I'll give you richly. Rise up and walk in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, I haven't healed anybody lately or ever, just so you know. But what I can do is pause for a moment and show compassion because sometimes just having compassion is enough to help somebody else get over a hump. Just knowing that, hey, this brother or sister will walk through with me. There may be times where you say, hey, I don't have any answers, but I'll weep with you. Hey, I don't have any money, but I'll share my meal with you. Hey, my house is kind of a wreck, but you're welcome to come sit in my living room and veg out with me. Or any number of examples that I could think of. Righteousness, what is it? Rightly related to God and showing that the Lord and His love to others. I want you to see then. She fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? 
How does Ruth respond to this generosity? Complete humility. Not, you owe me. Not, I deserve this. Not, yeah, this is what you should be doing, but thank you. I don't deserve it. That's when you see that type of humility, it is, <laughs> it's this show of, of, of genuine integrity and character in the face of hardship. Do you know what I'll tell you in this? I've come, and I'm coming more and more convinced of this. How is our character shown and tested? Our character is not shown and tested really in how we handle adversity. I'm not saying adversity is easy, and I'm not saying I relish it, but when things are hard, it's a little easier for me to cry out to God and say, I have nothing. The real test of character and, and integrity come in how we handle blessing. When someone blesses us, is it the uh, elder son and the prodigal, give me what you owe me. You have enough. You should give it to me. Now, you may say, I've never said that, and I'm not saying you have. I haven't either out loud, but maybe in our hearts we've thought that, that we're a little more deserving because somebody has more to give. And Ruth says, no, 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 no. Let's choose humility. It's in the face of blessing, how do we answer? We answer with hum humility and grace. So she fell on her face, and she thanked him. I can't believe you take notice of me, and I am a foreigner, she says. So when we look at this, this blessing is bestowed. How does Boaz build on this? But Boaz answered her, all that you've done before for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and your mother in your native land and you came to a people that you did not know before. And then he, he adds on a prayer that I'm going to get into in just a second. But I want you to see this, that Boaz bestows blessing on one who's sought to bless others. He blesses Ruth liberally. Why? Because he sees in her the very principles he is displaying to her. He sees one who's willing to sacrifice, one who's willing to give, one who's willing to show love. And when we look at this sacrificial love, beloved, that is a, a truer gauge of our hearts than what we can spout with our mouths. Sacrificial love is a much truer gauge of our hearts than what we can spout with our mouths. All the theological precision in the world is meaningless if we're not willing to love and love deeply and love hard. I value theological precision, but it can't be an either-or scenario. We have to be bold lovers of others. And as we see uh, blessing in other people, it should compel us to be a blessing to others. Someone in your life who's been a rich blessing to you. I can think of several people in my life, in, in my and Rachel's lives, who've been a blessing to us that compels me to want to be a blessing to other people. The phrase pay it forward is a, is a cultural idea, but that's not a bad way to think about it. We've been blessed, so how can I bless other people? So he, he, he adds this prayer. We get uh, Ruth's response. He adds this prayer, the Lord repay you for what you've done, and the full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, Boaz is praying a prayer. He'll actually be a part of fulfilling. Does he know? Does he not know? It doesn't matter. But what matters is, is that Boaz utters this, what is a little prayer here, that will be answered as the book unfolds. 
the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord. So he's asking God to richly reward Ruth who has sought and served, who sought out Naomi and served Naomi and in so doing has served the Lord. When we think about this type of prayer, beloved, we're looking at something that's about hope and rescue. Basically, the Lord give you hope and rescue you for what you've done. Now, I don't want to I don't want to get into a works theology. That's not my point. But the point is is that Boaz prays this beautiful prayer over Ruth that she might find what it is she has given to other people, specifically Naomi. But when you think about, I want to, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord. Beloved, what is the Lord's ultimate blessing for us? It's not money. It's not a bigger house. It's not an easier, better, more financially secure job. All those things are great. And if God gives you that, may your tribe increase. The real blessing of the Lord is His presence with us to go and do more and more and more and more of what's prescribed in Scripture, to continue being a conduit of the Lord and His faithfulness. Ruth's response to Boaz's prayer, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not of your servants. So this favor, that's chair, that, that word there, uh, I have found favor or, or grace in your eyes. And, and in other words, you have made me the object of your compassion and your charity. And if you look at Ruth, that's how she continues to treat others similarly. Boaz has chosen comfort and compassion in a culture where it did not exist. In those days, each, there was no king in Israel, and each did what was right in his own eyes. If you want to see how, vile, how, how, how vile the culture was that Boaz was living in, just go read the last two chapters of Judges. And I'm not saying that it's only confined there. Just read them, and you'll see how vile the culture was. And in this, you have this spike of pearl who stands out who chooses compassion. We live in a wretched culture of death. How do we stand out as a spike of pearl? By showing compassion, by showing charity, by loving well. And so when we think about the fruit of the Holy Spirit and God who's working in our midst, nothing shows those things like the type of character that Boaz displays here. Remember, I've said this before, Boaz is not remembered for acts of war or prophetic words. He's remembered for doing exactly what he's doing right here, loving someone who is beneath their society, metaphorically speaking, choosing grace and compassion when it didn't have to be chosen and when everybody else around him was doing something different, standing, as it were, for an ethic that was not the ethic of culture. Oh, beloved, that, that preaches… That's exactly, when we think of Ruth, how apropos is it for us today when we're going to stand for something that is not culturally accepted or liked. And so when we think about being a blessing to other people, it really doesn't require extraordinary feats, does it? It doesn't. You can be a blessing to somebody in a very ordinary way. 
You know, we had some friends that still live in Dothan, uh, the Humphreys, who are just dear, dear, dear godly people. And it was never lost on me. It was in their bathroom, but it was this beautiful little sign. And every time you walked in their bathroom, it was placed by the mirror so when you washed your hands, you could see it. Simply read, no act of kindness is too small. I've always remembered that little sign, very plain, no act of kindness is too small. You know why? Because kindness and blessing are the very traits of godliness. And it's never a small thing to go out of your way to be kind to another human being, even when they are spewing vitriol and hate. Because Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. This paragraph gets wrapped up really quickly, verses 14 to 16, um, all about the mealtime. And what, what, you know, when we talk about the imitation of Christ, I prayed about it earlier, uh, that is, faithfulness and imitating Christ run hand in hand. They go together. Boaz, in a mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed her the roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied and had some left over. Come and eat. Oh, I love these Hebrew things because this is more than just come have a snack. This is come to my table, share my bounty. You know what he's doing? Do you know how often covenants are put into practice? It's through a meal. So it shouldn't be lost on us that on the first Lord day, Lord's Day of every month, we come and we have the bread and we drink the cup, sharing a meal together as a sign and symbol that we're renewing covenant with Christ. Boaz invites her to his table and says, come and eat, and don't just fill your stomach. This is an act of love. It's provision. He's giving the bounty of his crop. He's sharing his table. He's inviting Ruth into the fellowship of his life. Come, have fellowship with us. But I want you to notice here, it's not, it's not altogether clear from the English text. Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers. And he, Boaz, passed to her roasted grain. Oh, he served her. Not come and take. Let me serve you who are weak, who are nothing, who are vulnerable, who have, quote, unquote, less value. He served the weak. And it was liberal in the giving. Don't just have a snack. Eat until you're satisfied. And oh, by the way, have some left over. You're starting to remember Jesus when he feeds the crowds and there's some left over that when God gives, he gives abundantly. The imitators of God, we give abundantly. Boaz has given abundantly. So he begins to establish a pattern. He closes this paragraph out with this. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, let her glean from even among the sheaves. Do not reproach her, i.e., do not humiliate her, and pull some out from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean. Do not rebuke her. So in between those do nots, do nots, this is what do, do. Go above and beyond the law. Do more than the law requires out of, for, for provision. And do not humiliate and rebuke her. That reproach there, humiliate, usually was sexual in nature. That's typically what it meant. So he is guarding her purity 
Don't do anything unseemly with her. You treat her as she needs to be treated. We would say you treat her as an image bearer who has value that is way more than merely her physical body. Guard her honor. Keep her integrity intact. You know why? Because Boaz has made her worthy. Actually, it's not Boaz who's done it. It's God who's done it. Boaz is recognizing her worth. Beloved, if you sit here this morning, it's exactly what Christ has done for you and for me. He has taken people who had a marred, broken image in them and made us worthy, reminded us we have worth, not because of anything that we do, but what He's done in us. And so that the faithfulness people need from us is what? Christ-likeness. To live out the precepts of Christ. Nothing communicates love and commitment like the embodiment of Christ. When we think about what it means to live out the precepts of Christ, beloved, I'm convinced that it's way more simple than we often try to make it. Simple faithfulness. Just good old-fashioned faithfulness is really the best thing. And why? Because we're operating from a model where we have seen God's faithfulness applied to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it compels us to live in a way that honors God. If this morning you would say, yes, I am righteous by Christ, my question is, how does that righteous work its way, righteousness work its way out? Because it's relational, you see, and it's designed to make us different so that we would live differently before the world. What is the root of godliness? The root of godliness is faithfulness rooted and bound to Christ. It is the sufficiency of Christ, and there is no better gift that we can give other people than the sufficiency of Christ at work in us. Robert Murray McShane once said, the thing my people need most is my personal holiness. I would say, yeah, and we need faithfulness. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your word this morning and its power, its truth, its rich beauty. You have given us a wealth of treasure in the storehouse of your word. May we live it. May we know it. May it seep into every aspect of who we are and transform us to the very core of our being that we would be found faithful in you and that people would see your love working in us. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.